0: History, Lecture 95, Rabbi Blyweis, the, um We started talking about general conflict breaking out. Um, it wasn't pretty. I'm not going to necessarily focus on the very, I mean, I mentioned that there were uh, fights and harems and jail sentences. Um, I guess I could elaborate on the uh, sorted Details, but you can use your imagination on those. Um, I prefer to get to the substance specifically. Um, can you hear me back there, Daniel? My voice is uh, no better than yesterday. Um, specifically, with regards to um, you know, what was the problem that the Miznagdin had with uh, with this new movement. And we already got to some of it, but let's, um, it, it, it got down to very nitty gritty particular issues. Number one, um, Hasidim self-consciously changed a lot of the practical um, way of observing Torah. Um, minhagi, what we call you know customs, which are very, very important. Um, we've talked about in the past, let's say I mentioned the Maharil as a major proponent of and there's a way we do things. Often we keep customs as a safeguard, upholding the Torah. It's our link to tradition. It's the way we go about every, every detail of our lives trying to serve Hashem. And um, because they change, now I'll give you a few examples, um, several of these customs and many of the changes seem to lack any precedent. I mean, they seem to be totally Hidushian. So, um, because of that, the uh, Miznakeim said in general in general, the Hasidim were guilty of violating a grave, um, not the exact Torah prohibition, but certainly the spirit of the Torah prohibition called to do, which means doing, doing anything that would drive a wedge between Jews. And you'll hear how many of the following practices absolutely created different groups, different social groupings necessarily. If you behave this way and I behave this way, often um, different customs are incompatible. Um, uh, in contrast, let's say, we talk about the many differences between the Edo and Mizrach uh, and the Nussach Ashkenaz. It's true, and uh, not always does Sephardim feel comfortable davening in an Ashkenazi minion and vice versa, but you know, we can get along, and it's not driving a wedge between us. It makes more sense that Svartim should daven with Sephardim and Ashkenazim with Ashkenazim, but that's not the same thing as... Well, let me... Let me um, let me illustrate. Um, there, soon, early in, in the movement, they developed a new kind of Shechita called, referred to today as Chassidish Shechita, familiar to you? Where um, what it meant was you used a different knife of finely honed, um, smelted steel that was certainly a Chumrah, and it didn't seem to have any precedent in any, in any source prior to the, t- to the times of the Chassidim. Um, but what it meant, what it meant was that there was an increased risk of on the of, of um, problems of nicks on the blade itself. Um, but more more generally, it meant that oh, you don't hold chassidish shchita. Well, then we can't eat with you because you know the way we eat is the way we define our social circles. So if I can't eat with you, if you're shchita, and now the chassidim were effectively saying to the traditional, uh, you know. Call it the Snagdish, Lidfish, Yeshivish world, whatever, whatever t- term you want. The, the the establishment, they were saying, your to no longer suffices. We're only going to eat among hasidim I don't understand. It's a knife
1: causes more nits, Why make the
0: knife? Well, um, they understood that it was a higher grade. That was the way. That was what was brought down. More... a
1: Okay, so, I mean, I agree, that
0: Fine. You're coming in now, hearing the critics. And, and their problems. Um, I'll, I'll, give a, I'll, I'll try as best I can um, to present a defense. Um, I think my bias is probably, I mean, I should have probably given this from the get-go, my bias is probably coming through. There's nobody who could teach this particular topic in history who doesn't have a bias. Um, it seems to me that uh, logic and uh, reason seems to follow the non-Hazidish side, that they're the, they're the voice of a of real tradition, but, you know, the Hasidim never claimed to be the voice of tradition. They were self-conscious revolutionaries to begin with.
1: There's no hope about this.
0: Yes, but let me, I'm about to get to that. Um, <coughs> um, so they said, yeah, we're trying, in the spirit of the Baal Shemta, we're trying to shake things up. We're trying to make people do, think, do things differently and think differently. And that's very much to get us more excited about tradition and to... Um, make the Jews more worthy of, and, and, and the world more of a, a conducive place for a Mashiach to come. That was that was their end game. Um, practically, um, yeah, this meant that Jews couldn't eat together, and that's that's would be a pretty clear illustration of what the been called lo lo sisko to do. You're driving wedges um, between the Jews. Now today, ironically, it's widely accepted. Um, to the point that, uh, you know, it's become the establishment. As much of what was originally called <coughs> really has become the establishment. I'll illustrate. I, I don't know if anybody caught this yesterday. Um, you weren't here yesterday, so maybe yeah, sure. Daniela. Right. The yeah. Upsuren is, yeah, no, you were here for the day, for us, too? Maybe it was the day before you missed? Yeah, yeah. My mistake. Anyway, if you got the irony of, I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but Greenwald tends to have Lichfish. Uh, leanings And, um, you know, it's absolutely accepted among many non-Hasidic litvish circles to make an upshroom. That well, that's a question. But it certainly is, was, a um, hundred years ago, standard in, in, in many Hasidic circles, and not at all. And the Stipler the Rebbe, for example, talks about, you know, he said that's not, uh, it's not a Jewish practice. Not a, I mean, not, not the standard practice. But today, it's, it's taken over part should, of the reason should, should we do it should we, do it or should we not do it yeah. um, I think it's okay either way you have good upstanding people on either side of the fence making upsurance or not making upsurance. you're fine either way I think the idea why why did I mean here's here's, here's one analysis one explanation possibly why Hasidic, what Chassidus and many of these Minhagim took over and captivate till today so many Jews um, a lot of them feel her like let's say you let your kids your, your son's hair grow out and then you make a whole a whole celebration where everybody comes and cuts a lock of hair and I don't know if you, anybody noticed, I felt a little uneasy there but I did it because I love my colleague and um, but everybody cuts a lock of hair and it's, it's a whole thing that you make it into um, and, and on a certain level if you if you're an educator you can turn it into a wonderful opportunity to celebrate you know the upshon after all is a hidur mitzvah um, celebrating peos that we from a Torah, we learn in Argamar and Makos that on a Torah level we're not allowed to shave certain parts of our you can't you have to make sure you have to have sideburns you can't use a um, a razor or razor-like instrument on your face and this is as it were the boys just turning three this is a way of kind of introducing this whole concept to the kids along the same lines people grow out what are called peos the 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 um, the locks on either side of the of the head um, for the same idea and this is a way to celebrate the mitzvah. So, um, you know, we see it's on, and it's very much part of the establishment. That was not originally the case. All of this was just seen as radical and upstart and, um, and problematic, not neutral at all. Um, the change in the Nusach in Tefillah, which is hotly debated, is it really the Arizal's Nusach? Um, we don't know from the Arizal, certainly, but it's not even clear from Rav Chaim Vital that that was... He's actual Nusach, even though many big Jews, bigger than me certainly, claim that it is. So um, they started davening a different Nusach that sometimes is characterized as a cross, as a hybrid between Ashkenaz and um, Sefardi, Eidrona Mizrach. That's not quite right, it's probably closer to Sfardi, but it's definitely different. And, um, even, though, and even within the Nusach, what's called Nusach Sephard, which is the, supposedly you know, parallel to the Nusach Ashkenaz, uh, the Arizal, there's a difference between what Chabad, Chabad uses versus some of the other groups use. What's that? Ari. Ari. The that's, that's the Chabad version. It's very similar, but there, there are differences. And um, it meant that, among other things, we didn't, not only do we now not eat together, we don't daven together anymore. Chassidim um, introduced a concept that's probably very familiar to a lot of us, especially if you live near a large Jewish metropolitan center of Shtibalach, which is a local, sometimes referred to as minion factories, were very convenient, very Hamish, very, uh, you know, uh, making, on the positive side, of course, is it facilitates uh, Jews being able to make it to minion with greater ease, because maybe if there wasn't shtibolach, there'd be certain Jews who wouldn't even bother going to shul, because if the times are very rigid, they'll just say, I'll, I'll just daven on, on my own. So there's definitely an advantage to shtibolach, but the been cried foul. They said, what is this? Daven. There should be a majority of the community together when we in shachris. Yes, and mincha, and yes, and Mariv. And there should be, it should be. It should be. It should be in a formal. The sh'tibalach by definition was very informal. Hamish, people could and often are, it's conducive to coming late, leaving early, more anonymity. So you could kind of like do your own thing and not be accounted for. Whereas if you have a place in shul, there's a chances. Chances are at least that you'll you'll do things with a little bit more formal rigor. Yeah. Um, right, and and certainly if there's a, if there's one meaning in shul, it's more conducive to um, the community having a certain cohesiveness. You know, here we, we are. I'll see, you know, will, will you see your neighbor in shul tonight? Yes, we in together always eight fifteen. Myriv and it's set, sh'tibalach. It's it's uh, catches catch can. It's whatever whoever you happen to see then. It doesn't have that same um, cohesiveness. But then you
1: think that people are moving to have well, the because the biggest.
0: Sure, pros and cons and everything. Sure. Yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, Shtibalach, by definition, is not so membership-oriented. You could be more of a nameless, faceless... Okay,
1: yeah.
0: Um, we talked in my Gemara Shir about the uh, minhag of Qubrochs, which, um, not to, it, we shouldn't denigrate it, the Mishnabura brings it down as a legitimate minhag, even though it's not so clear that it was his minhag. Probably was not as midnight, but there, there, there certainly were big people who were careful with Gabros. But Gabros was definitely a Hasidic revolution a variation um, of forbidding um, any matzah um, to be eaten with any liquid. Uh, they famously, let's say, would never have matzah balls. They would never have matzah lasagna. They would never soak their matzas in any liquid. Um, the logic of it is that you, there's a concern perhaps some of the flour didn't cook properly, and if you combine it with any liquid, it might then cook, it might bake more, and then you, you excuse me, it might become chometz, not bake, it might become chometz um, in the process. So there are those, there are variations in keeping the Brooks, but there are those purists who only eat the first night of Pesach, matzah mitzvah, but from that point on, the rest of Pesach, they have, no, they have no matzah, they have no matzah meal, that's right, no matzah cookies, unless, of course, the new, the new innovation of potato starch which uh, makes all you know all kinds of Pesed, pesedic type things, but no matzah, right? Which is which is um, significant among other things. The pasuk says that seven days you should eat matzah, so this is a, this is a break from form. The legend had it that the Vilna Goan had a matzah ball in his windowsill. It's a legend. I doubt it's true. It sounds too petty. But uh, certainly the gra was anything but petty. But the the idea that you know we can eat matzah balls and that that's okay. But um, here here too. Uh, you, you keep kebraks, you don't keep kebraks, you're certainly not going to be eating, over, eating together during the eight days of Pesach. I'm saying eight days because I'm assuming most of these Jews, uh, of course, these Jews are mostly living outside the land of Israel um, during this period. The, um, the Hasidim slept in the sukkah on Shmini Atzeret, which was a break from tradition and certainly problematic. Uh, they innovated, they started a new practice of sitting during the Kriya Satira. Previously, the practiced Ashkenazi world always stood during the reading of Torah. Not now, the sit, and there will be an increasing and very notorious break from formal tefillah and neglect of tefillah times. Where, let's say, hypothetically, one imagines um, <coughs> the rebis tish, which I'm about to get to, um, the rebis tish would take would take up all hours of the night, and the purpose of it was to get people excited and close to the rebbe. Um, but then, of course, you got to sleep at a very late, late hour, and you would sleep in and miss, you know, Sosman sometimes sosemah Um Till today, I mean, I know of at least um, I know of at least a couple, probably more than just that, um, rebis who are the heads of certain Hasidic dynasties, uh, you know, groups today, who um, in ways that never has been justified, I mean, they're apparently they're big, they're big tzaddikim, I'm sure they're wonderful people in many ways, but they themselves apparently sleep through sosman kriyashman. That's an absolute violation of a clear, straightforward halacha. Um, as Jews, we understand that you know, if we don't have the daladamos of halacha, that's what the Gemara Baruchel says, that since the base of destroyed, all I have in serving Hashem is the Dalat Amos of Allah. you violate that, you can't call it Judaism anymore. Um, I'm just getting started. So far, we're, we're, we're okay? We're, not, we're, we're okay, so, so the, the Miznaqim really had uh, a substantial list of, um, of, of claims. Um, the, we've already talked about, from the Baal Shem Tov already, the diminished centrality of learning Torah. That was a big deal, that is a big deal. Um, Again, we said that many of them would learn other works, um, a whole new kind of Torah. Um, In Chabad, one finds, for example, um, sometimes the way it's taught, um, kids learn the Tanya, um, and they know the Tanya better than they know the Chumash. Well, to most, most Jewish minds, that's distorted. That's distorted. The Tanya is not, in fact, as great a book. It doesn't even rank up there with anything next to the Torah, um, but, the, the, but the priorities were, were skewed. Um, often one found the Hasidim, this new movement, scorning Talmud e Chohamim, um claiming, oh, you guys aren't, aren't morally, uh, you know, you, you don't have your act together on a moral level. Um, the, um, what one of the things, of course, what was called the more, <coughs> what was considered the more popularist, popular, or populist uh, version of Judaism, we're going to see Hasidism spread. Do you know that by the ninth, by the twentieth century, ninety um, percent of Poland were uh, Polish Jewry were Hasidic. It was it, was, it just took over, um, and one of the reasons is it's it's very very popular. Um, you know, would you like to spend your days and nights sitting in the base mattress, breaking your teeth on Gemara Rashi Tosafos, or how about? Davening with immense kavana, well, the second one, or, or, or achieving dvekas, as we said, in doing mundane activities in daily life, the second options were much more accessible. The common person could do that much more easily than Tosvos, than, than than master Tosvos. How many people live in Poland? Um, the Jewish center of gravity would be in Poland, and then Russia. Russia was also very big.
1: Like how many
0: million? Um, I have the numbers when we get to the eighteen hundreds. I don't have them in my mind. Um, in Davening itself, they, Hasidim had practices that were seen as um, bizarre, to put it mildly, they had a pra- several had a practice, I'm, I'm generalizing, so when I say, for example, several Hasidim had a practice, it's not true of everybody. Remember yesterday we described how um, the Magid sent out Rebis to um, different parts of the world, predominantly Poland, Russia, um, we think of russia ukraine and 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 white russia and and um, hungary and um, central eastern europe and and many of the um you know different charismatic figures started their own courts and there would be there would emerge differences and sometimes arguments between the different courts so what i'm saying is not uniformly true of all hasidim but one found this for example um, in, among, among many chassidim one found that it was encouraged that in the middle of davening you would interrupt, let's say, your Shemona with um, an outburst suddenly of Yiddish expressions you'd be, you'd be in the middle of Shemona and you'd scream, "Oy Gewalt, for example well in halacha, what's that called? that's a hefsik that's an interruption, that's asr but the chassidim taught that and encouraged <laughs> it as a way of getting more into it you know, the Hasidim defended themselves. They said, okay, fine. So you don't want us to say, oi, Gaval, Do you have one whittle of kavanah when you're davening? You can hear where they're coming from. They're trying to get the common person into it. And they felt that the ends justified the means, that um, these were all legitimate... Um, Is that wrong? What's that? Is that wrong? I'm doing my best to try to present the information so that you have a more informed... You, you, you're the undeniably jury, you be the jury. I, I, I admitted at the beginning of this class that I, my tendencies are, are undeniably Litfish. Uh, you know, so, but I also can see a lot of the beauty and I can also understand, I can appreciate where the Hasidim were coming from. Um, I think you know, if they're saying that uh, a lot of Litfish people lack kavana. I mean not just Litfish, it's the world in general, but you know, the world is an establishment that we lack kavana, and we need all the help we can get, they're onto something. Yeah, they certainly got a point. Whether I would advocate, you know, screaming out in the middle of your Shmonos, of course they wouldn't. That violates halacha. There's a way of going about doing things. You can never go against halacha. That's not, that's not legitimate. Um, they did more. They gesticulated wildly. Some of them in the middle of Shemona would suddenly turn and do somersaults. I do not exaggerate, folks. The, um, <coughs> the, yeah, the, know, the it appeared... How, wa- not,
1: how did you do somersaults and I don't know.
0: I don't know. How do the, um, the, Nananachmens, uh, the 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 subsect of Breslav today go dancing in the streets? Total Hashem um, against the teachings of Bre- of normative Breslav. Why the Well, because they misrepresent um, their brand of Hasidus and really Torah in general as as um, as nonsensical, has no basis in anything. They claim it's it's, it's acting out. There's a, there's a famous line in Reb Nachman about going to the streets and dancing and so on, but they misunderstand it. And none of the none of the um, interpreters of Rabbi Nachman endorse that. In any case, um, yeah. Uh, by most accounts, uh, you know, it's wild, it's arrogant. The Gemar Brachos tells us that um, a person who daven's out loud is is um, lacks emuna, is is, is is weak in faith. Um, one of the critics we met, Rav Yaakov Emden, I'm going to quote him. He says, "They prolonged their davening for half a day. Some of them did." Uh, I mean, they really—they really haven't," they really um, he said. They perform strange movements, weird and ugly. They clap their hands. They shake sideways. To defend the practices, of Shneur Zalman, the the original Lubavitcher um, Rebbe, he said it was necessary. Again, given the weak kavana of the generation, um, there was a classic defense that people gave to the somersaults. Anybody have Yiddish here? No. Okay. So I'll do my best with my own lack of my own, my own weak Yiddish. The expression that they said was, as mentioned, "Godless azoy mus which translates something like, um, "When a person's afflicted with too much pride, you have to turn yourself upside down." I guess I, I guess I'm prone would call it vanaf. Well, again, that's the that's the way they understood it. That's how they justified it. Um, this next area, you could understand, is very complicated, and those of you, you who have been with me from, since we started this topic, um, this would be a direct extension of the whole criticism of pantheism, pantheism being the, um, the, the, the idea that a kanosh baruchu is imminent, that, it's, that Hashem is everywhere. Hashem is everywhere. So that um, some, and not everybody, and this is controversial, but um, some of the Hasidic Rebbe's taught that a person should dafka get close to evil, to Rishus, because what will find God there too. And if you, Kabbalistically, if you embrace it and find the godliness down in the depths, in the, in the area of human depravity, um, then uh, you'll be able to release the Kedusha trapped, the spark of Kedusha trapped down and below, and of course, long-term um, bring the messianic era Um, In the Togus Yaakov Yosef, for example, he teaches in the name of the Baal Shem Tov that if um, a person, if he has a thought, that's a stray thought that he shouldn't have, and I'll let you uh, figure out what kind of thought that might be about, Um, if he has such a thought, um, like, for example, he says, niuf, which refers to adultery and other such activities, um, by the way, I'm gonna interrupt here. What would be the standard Jewish response? What's the standard Torah response if a person has suddenly a thought in his mind of a fantasy, a meal? Can you, wash Can you wash your hands. What else should you do? I mean, really straightforward. Your thought away. Yeah. Get over it. So Not just, easy. Just push Agreed. It away, Agreed. Agreed. Push it. But, but the end goal, get rid of it. Yeah. Um, the Yeah. I heard one
1: idea that you should think of it. The more you try not to think. I know,
0: I know, I know, I know, it's true. You know, okay, then you're just playing you know, mind tricks. I agree. It's, it's tricky. Um, but, but here they, um, he, he brings in the name of the Baal Shem Tov that a person should try to raise up the thought and bring it to its root. If, for example, you see in your mind's eye a beautiful woman, what you should do is think, where does her beauty come from? It comes from Hashem. And it's Hashem's power that spreads within her. Um, they referred to davening, where Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl refers to davening, he, he calls tefillah the secret of, as it were, some kind of um, total intimacy between the human and the Kaddish Baruch Hu, between Knesset Yisrael and the Kaddish You hear the ideas and there is an element of merit to them because it's true that everything, if there's beauty in it, the source of the beauty is the Kaddish Baruch Hu. But the classic approach—you don't have to look further than Pirkei Avos—to understand that the classic approach, given the fact that our Sahara is so incredibly potent and so tricky and constantly tra- ensnares us, is to avoid it like the plague. One of the reasons why traditional Jews try to separate the <laughs> genders, try to do things separately as best you can—you know, as best as best, insofar as you have any control over these things—don't expose yourself, and then you won't have a problem. So, I mean, these are wildly, uh, the, the, you know, the response, I mean, from the misogynist perspective, this is trafe, this is, uh, is um, blasphemy, <laughs> blas- <clears throat> we, we have to get rid of this. Am I making a case why people were so impassioned on either side of the, uh, of the conflict? I mean, this, and, and, and you can't just sit passively, you know, people are coming on one, from one perspective to the other, you have to take sides. Um, and, that, and that's what's going on. And this is different than Shabtai Tzvi. Because Shabtai Tzvi, as much as it captured the uh, Jewish imagination, Shabtai Tzvi was eventually exposed as a, um, as, as a charlatan, as a fake. Um, here, Hasidus has, as we keep saying, lots of merit and lots of basis. It's simply got these other qualities that are distortions um, that make it very, very difficult to, to grapple with. Um, the Rebbe. The role of the rebbe was extremely problematic in the minds of many chassidim, many Misnadim. Um, the <coughs> followers, if you were a follower today, this, this works similarly in most, in, for most chassidim. Not everybody. They give um, kvitlach to their um, rebbe to maintain a connection. Now, what is a kvitl? Kvitl is a piece of paper where you write on it tefilas. In itself, a little bit strange. The notion of kvitlach, we put kvitlach in the in the cracks of the Kosel. Those are also called kvitlach, little notes you put in the kosel. Yeah, those also a bit
1: strange, though. A lot of people who do Yeah, know. but I
0: would say, I would say certainly yeah, heads and heels less problematic than giving it to a Rebbe where the implication is, what, I'm praying, I'm davening to the Rebbe? No, of course not. Of course, the Rebbe's taking my tefillah and davening to Hashem, I think. But you can see what a fine line it is where some people actually forgot that detail and actually took the kfitlach to the Rebbe and saying, Rebbe, could you give me, could you give my son a, a good shidduch or a good parnasa? Because you could see the Rebbe, if the Rebbe had a pipeline to Kaddish Baruch Hu that you lacked, maybe the Rebbe himself had it was an emanation of Kaddish Baruch Hu and the, uh, how close this approximates a Um not just a Bodhazara, but um, the whole process. Uh, well, I forgot the one big detail um, in the Kvitlach. Of course, it wasn't just your tefillah. What else did they include? Money. Money. And does that sound? Indulgence. Thank you so much, Akiva. <laughs> you're, right, you're right on the, on the money. As it were, right. In other words, this is a lot about Hasidus, a lot about early Hasidus was unmistakably Christian in influence. The old, remember, remember the indulgences? You know, you gave to the church, and you, you you bought your you bought your way to Olam Haba, as it were. Um, this was shocking. The rebbe's lifestyles sometimes were elaborate, sometimes really overboard, excessive. Um, we know, for example, Rav Yisrael of Sadigura. Sadigura Kola is just down the end of the street here. Um, uh, so he had a large retinue of servants. He had a horse stable. He had an elaborate gold carriage. And you have to imagine, can, can you, can you, do, you have the, do you have the image in your mind? This is, these are in the days where people <laughs> barely had bread to put on their table. You know, most Jews in Europe in these days had no parnasa. People starved to death and you had a Rebbe who was really the image of, 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 re, of regal, you know, grandeur. Um, now, the, this was defended. The Nomeli Melech said, first of all, there's a precedent in our tradition of Isachar Zvulun, that the simple, that the businessman, like the Zvulun, gives money to the Isachar, in this case, I guess, the Rebbe, and, and, and thereby, you know, there's, there's, you know, one supports the other in this world, the other supports the one in the world to come. Noam um, Eliach said more significantly, he said that the Rebbe's got no personal benefit or pleasure from their luxuries, meaning it was all for show, it was all really for the benefit of the people. The people should feel that they had access to this regal figure and, and therefore feel a spirituality through that. Um, that was the idea. Um, and towards that end, for example, one of the Rebbe's um, used to wear the fanciest of shoes, um, but he made sure that they had no soles on the bottom. And what's the purpose? The fancy shoe is to show the people it's supposed to look a certain way, but meanwhile, he himself got no pleasure from it. Right. So that, that was the spirit that they tried to do it in. Um, was that? Okay. Okay. You would not be allowed. No, but that was intentional. That was because I'm doing it L'Shem Shemaya. I'm doing it for the people, but I, I get no. I don't. I get. Remember Rebbe Yehuda Nasi, but Rebbe Yehuda Nasi was in, incredibly wealthy, and he said, With my little pinky, I didn't get benefit in this world. He used all of his money to support all the other Talmudic. That was the spirit. Um, but the cult, and it was called a cult, of the Rebbe, of the Tzaddik, who is seen, sometimes he emerged. How did he qualify as being the Tzaddik? Sometimes charisma. Charisma, meaning you know, just force of personality, but that's strange from a Jewish perspective. Our leaders are never—it's never because it's the most popular guy or the guy who gives a good lecture. Our leaders are people who are who are versed in Torah, who have who have excellent excelled in their midos, their are their the not not stam, not not just a person who can who can talk a good game. Um, some of the people were actually maybe not ame aaretz, but not not at all distinguished in their learning. All of that seemed idolatrous. Yeah.
1: When you say that those Hasidic dynasties, yes, but it's not by family. It is by.
0: It's It's usually by family. I'm not there yet. That's even worse. It's also criticism because then it's not it's it's not a meritocracy. Exactly. Exactly. Just because my father was a rebbe that qualifies me. Sometimes I mean we certainly have examples of of great scholars whose sons turned into great scholars too, but that was purely because the sons merited. Not because they, they were born kingdom. to the manor.
1: It's a Jewish king. I mean, they're probably related. Like, like Yitzhak was probably so great. For sure,
0: for sure. Know. But, you know, uh, you know Rav Haim Brisker's sons were, were all Tamadei Chachamim, but only the Brisker Rav, Rav Elvada, who's one of his sons, was a gadol. Because he worked his way into that position, and he was distinguished on his own merits. Um, some, uh, as we saw in the nomel Melch, encouraged this, had, had um, uh, performed miracles, uh, many of them healed individuals. You know, one one imagines evangelical Christians nowadays, but that was that was the Rebbe's were seen as having powers. Um, some were infallible; they could never make a mistake. Uh, that, one one thinks about the Pope. One thinks about infallibility. Um, some of them did a practice called mesirus machavos, which we would translate as mind reading. And I thought that Daniel, don't you dare think that again, okay? Uh, yeah. The, um, <coughs> so, you know, these were, okay, wow. Um, Rav Chaim Hekel of Amdur heard confession. He wasn't alone, he's not the only one. It was, we say confession, we clap al-cheit, we say vidui Kaddish and only a Kaddish And then did he forgive them? Or? I don't know how that works, that's a good question. Um, the style of burial of the Rebbe, was often elaborate. It was a huge ohel, huge tent, massive uh, uh, matseva on top of the kever, um, and became popular sites of pilgrimage. One, today, one thinks of Uman and going to Reb Nachman, but he was not the first. Um, that would also be seen as um, you know the soil. The soil of the people took soil from the Rebbe's kever and took it home with them, and it was seen to have um, it was a good luck charm and and had kedusha, even excelling the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael.
1: Why would you take something home
0: that Tommy do? Good question. They, okay. Yeah,
1: hey, let's think about Tommy yeah.
0: The Rebbe's Tish, they call it Der Tish, right. um, it was an elaborate meal, and you asked about drinking. Um, it made a regular day of the week as if it was Kodesh, where life is celebrated, and all in the spirit of Dvekas, we're going to clean the Godesh Baruchus, so we're going to have these long, elaborate meals sort of looked like, I mean remember this is in Eastern Europe, kind of like a bunch of Cossacks sitting around and drinking. Somebody tell me, told me that they are, they're trying to open up a bar in Goula. Maybe they did. Maybe they did, okay, so it's this a similar image. You know, a what word. are you taking a bar, you know, a bar which is in our imagery, in, our, in what we think it was metaphorically, the, the, the height of, 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 of a non-Jewish kind of activity, and you open up in Gaula, that's in a similar association I make here. They had, they had these, 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 these elaborate tissues um, lots of eating, lots of drinking. Um, this is unprecedented. You remember the Jews historically were, were almost never known to be drunkards, um, and now suddenly you could indulge. Um, the, the whole phenomenon of the Rebbe's Shirayim, he would eat a bite of the, of the kugel, right? And then you pass out, and everybody would clamor, and I've been at a tish before, where sometimes people will fight to get the precious, um, precious <laughs> from the crumb from the, from the Rebbe's kugel. And what? What is that? Where is that from? Like, what basis is that? Some of the Rebbe touched it, it's holy. Um, they smoked, uh, they smoked cigarettes, tobacco pipes, um, all of which was meant to induce simcha. Meaning, the goals were very lofty. We saw this yesterday. The idea was get the simple person connected to Kodesh Baruch Eve, du'ez Hashem, Simcha. You know, it's nice to sit around and drink and, and eat elaborate meals. The question is, is that proper, du'ez Hashem, on a regular basis? So, and, and certainly if it's, that's what we do on Shabbos and Yontif. If you do that all week long, what, what's left for Shabbos and Yontif? So having like a, uh, opening up a Hasidic bar is pretty problematic? I don't know. To say the least. I guess so. You're using, uh, you're, you're putting words in my mouth. It's, it's, it's I'm trying to give you the information. You're, you, 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 litvac, you, you judge for yourself. The, um, I'm sure the God said that we we do a lot of things. I don't know if you realize just how deeply, deeply influential the Hasidic practices in the world. You know the idea that we sit around singing, at extending song sessions. And I'm guilty as charged. I love it. I, I you know, it definitely uh, connects me and and, and and gives me gives me a spiritual uplift. But that's directly from the Hasidic world. They would sit around and sing for hours and hours and hours. And the Misnagdim said, take out a safer and learn. No. Um, sometimes people would, they would sing for, for long, long extended extended uh, sessions of smiros Anshavas, Shabbos, even during chol. But then the misnagdim said they benched in two seconds flat. Wait, wait, that's backwards. You claim to be singing for Kadosh Baruch Hu, but Birchas is a mitzvah de'oraisa. Where are your priorities? So they stopped
1: singing.
0: The misnagdim, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure when you go, I, I think that a lot of the world, if you look around the world today, so much is explained, um, whether you're Hasidic, whether you're Litvish, I use the term Litvish, often that's the, that's a, a shorter, more easier way of expressing the Misnaged, well, Misnaged means the opponents, right, they were the ones who opposed, to when it went to the opposition against the Hasidim, um, um, the, the capital of the opposition was in Lita, Lithuania, with the capital being in Vilna. So that's why people think of that as, as litvish. Sometimes you go um, to, uh, to certain litvish shuls and there is almost no singing to an extreme. And some explain that as being a backlash response. We're not chassidim. I saw um, at a very litvish shul, um, people that, some of the people after Kedish vana break into what the <coughs> traditional dances. right, right, right. Was saying, and the Rab of the community um, very, very strongly got up and said, We do not do this. This is a Hasidic practice and this is not for us. Oh, sh- and he put a stop to it. Okay? Oh. Uh, so you under- people are very, very emotional and reactionary in these, in these areas where, you know, I, I remember in the same shul, um, in, during Rosh Hashanah davening, not a Nigun was sung. Right, and all of the long Chazars Hashatz, which is very conducive to nigunim. Except, I didn't quite understand this. Why exactly why why this was the case? For some reason, the, it was the same Rav who was a beautiful ball um He he, um, he sang, um, you know, the old nigun, "Koama, Koama, shem La Chesed For some reason, that was sung, and there was a reaction in the community. Like suddenly, everybody broke out into song, and it was like they were starving for it. You know, because. Yeah. Go ahead, Reverend. The examples we're I don't mean to take the Hasidic viewpoint over here, but I do believe there's an interesting representative over here because I feel like this is very one-sided One over here right now. That was yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yesterday we, we got all Hasidic and we had a tish. Today we're, uh-huh. we're doing the Litvish fish site. First
1: of all, I, I'll be honest with you, I believe that the example you are giving of uh, that shul
0: is Mugzai.
1: In word, that's not... The, not typical. Not typical
0: at all. No. One finds more. increasingly, I would even argue, in the world, more of integration. There's a little <laughs> bit more of a... The, who is Some would even
1: say our token. Our token? Yeah, I don't know. be politically correct. Of or course, or
0: of course. Of I think he might have... He can have some very nice
1: Marshall
0: ones. No, Yeah, you, you chose. You, it, I'm
1: sorry. He uh, wanted a very nice muscle that... Um, I gave an example of a father who had two son in laws. And one son in law, he pro- promised him what we call cast, like he's going to provide him for several years, that every day for the next X amount of years, he'll give him a meaty meal, even maybe a place you can meal for a good lunch. Yeah, yeah I just had it recently. Yeah, uh, and the other son in law, he promised after the next five years, that he was going to a good, healthy dairy lunch, good cheeses, and things like that, Both of them that they'd be able to you know, continue on their path of learning Torah to have the support of the father-in-law. Unfortunately, a couple of years down the line, the father-in-law wasn't able to keep his financial commitments, business was being a little rough in, and he calls in the son-in-law, the one who promised Falashix to, and he said, listen to me, and he said, I can't afford to meet on a daily basis. But in order to keep the custom that we've been doing, I'm going to serve you potatoes, but the potatoes—excuse <coughs> me—will be cooked in a mini pot. Every day you'll have potatoes in a flasher cup. A while later, he comes up to the son-in-law, who serving—excuse <coughs> me—dairy too. And he says, "Again, I can't afford the expensive cheeses anymore. We're going to serve you potatoes, but we'll be serving potatoes in a dairy pot." And that's the way the two son-in-laws were able to keep their customs. So he wanted to say, Rambam oh that that's really part of the pot of it—that's the melting pot a little bit of the Hasidic... Yeah, um, we're going there.
0: That's, I mean, right now, we've just broken into the initial conflict where everything's raw and the, the, the sides are very, very divided. What winds up happening, especially in the second and third generations, is both sides will sort of, as it were, correct the excesses. Means, which and they, they come the in full circle. Still
1: today that's so right.
0: Moved. You don't find that so commonly, right. but right. you right. find it. Right.
1: They, some say that the greatest thing that happened in Hasidic was the little um, you know who says that? Semach
0: Tzedek, who I'm about to quote, but he's the, third, he's the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, who, since you bring it up, but I'll quote not it. Really going yeah, right, exactly. decided, decidedly exactly. not. Like, so uh, listen, uh, listen to Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the Sedek Tzedek, um, saying, Anshe Shlomenu, referring to the Hasidim, our people, do not recognize <coughs> the great kindness the Gaon did for us when he opposed us, for the ecstatic fervor and the uplifted spirit inherent in the new movement he said would have ultimately resulted in the scorching of the talmud by kabbalah and this hidden torah would have resulted in this in um, in the diminished image of the torah nigla, the revealed Torah. so he, he i mean that's that's a big that's a big acknowledgement and he's not alone i mean i, I you're ahead of me now but we're
1: historically didn't the Chassin do better against assimilation than the
0: um, in retrospect, it looks that way, especially nowadays. Part of a comment that I made earlier today was that they excel in the, in what feels from and looks from, I just referred to the irony of the coming out of giving a whole shear on chasidists yesterday and going to the uh, where, <laughs> which is, you know, of all people, you know, a lidfish person who, so why, because a lot of this feels more authentically religious. The dress and many of the customs um, sort of in, in embrace you and, and, and they, the fact that they, they not the Litvish world, have maintained Yiddish and therefore kites, much more effectively. Rav Shach in the 1980s, um, Rav Shach reflecting the Litvishvo, Rav Shach among other, uh, the, the Dorian was also a Shashiva Panovich, one of the great Litvish yeshivas, flagship yeshivas. Rav Shach said, Yiddish is not a war we're going to win. But the Hasidim maintained it because they were much more isolationist and capable of. For example,
1: in America, the Lithuanian community, Yiddish has dominated. Oh, is making this an okay. example. One of my daughters' name is uh-huh. not a very common name that we give here in Israel. No, and her name is Lata Malka. Some of the cousins, okay. But in America, the scramble, a lot of the children named after it, it's Lata is becoming almost as big as oh.
0: Right. So we'll see eventually that, that there's going to be some um, leveling out of the conflict and a mellowing of uh, of either side by the other. One's going see, we're going to see that, but right now it's all very raw. And, um, and the issues haven't yet, at, without, without sweeping things under the carpet, um, not all the issues have been resolved. And some of the sharper things that we just uh, itemized were, you know, were clearly not resolved. Into all of this, and we have, we have, to, we have to consider the figure of Eliawa Vilna, otherwise known as the Vilna Gaon, who I'm going to focus on now for the rest of our time together today. Um, you have to understand who he was and his <laughs> immense stature. Um, his dates are 1720 to 1797. Um, with all the uh, immense luminaries of his era, he arguably eclipsed them all. Um, to the point that the Ferz Yisrael said that once in a thousand years, a figure of the dimension of the Vilna emerges. Um, to illustrate that, he alone among all the Ahronim, this is an idea we've said before, what does he have the, uh, the authority to do? Or uh, um, Ar- he can take on a Um the Vilna He doesn't do it often. he's very selective. But when he does, his opinion is his opinion counts. Um, Rov Aaron Cutler, the founder of Lakewood. Uh, yeshiva, felt that any attempt to assess the Vilnagon was doomed to fail, so I'm going to try anyway. Uh, at least to give a sense, because you can't, you can't consider any of these um, issues, you can't understand what happened in the 18th century, unless you have some handle on who the Vilnagon is, and it's so interesting. Um, they couldn't find little, little um, Eliyahu teachers. He um, ate up teachers uh, for breakfast, and then they had nothing to serve him for lunch. Uh, that was just the, that. was the way of his of his brilliance. His formal schooling ended when he was six years old. He graduated all all possible um, schools. He learned by um, one of the commentaries, one of the commentators on the Yerushalmi, the Pnei Moshe. He had another Rebbe, of of Chichanovitz, but mostly was what we call an autodidact. He was self-taught. Um, <coughs> most people, Chasidim, Misnagdim, you name it. Um, assumed that he was, um, he had Ruach HaKodesh, he had the divine inspiration. Um, Partly that explains, I don't know if you're familiar with what's called Min HaNegra. Today, much of the world increasingly is influenced by that are that go back to the Gra. Um, Interestingly, because that was not initially the case, but starting around about a little less than a century after the Vilna Gon was alive, around the days of the base of Levi, the um, progenitor of the Soloveitch family, uh, family dynasty. The, um, not that it's a dynasty, not finish, but anyway, around that time, one started to see, I'll give you some illustrations of things that have become increasingly accepted. Um, one finds it especially around Eretz Israel and, and particularly in Yushalayim. Um, the Gra had the minhag of not wearing tefillin and holo um, that, that, that's become very dominant. Um, the Grawash is not three, but four times on each hand for Negovasar in the morning. Um, he holds not to say Baruch Hu Ruch Shemo in the middle of Brachos. <coughs> we, we say the special, <coughs> on special days, holidays, and Chanukah and Purim and such, uh, there's a Minag to say not the normative Shir Shalyom, but a special replacement shir shalyom, you could see for example in the tefillah kolpeh and other sidurim, they they list which special...
1: Uh, and the hold the, the
0: Very good, that's my next thing. Um, they, um, right, they don't sing the... Say it again? The, the yeah. they sing
1: the... The, the Chard sings the,
0: the, the Right, it's responsive, not yeah. a song, correct? Also, Gra is not to say Vishamru um, Vanei Yisrael. It's Shabbos on lel Shabis. Shabbos. They say instead of Yiska Dal Kadash, uh, Yiska Dal Kadesh in Kaddish and many many other um, many many other Minhagim. When the Gra was three, he was already considered a master of Chumash. <coughs> when he was six, he um, gave a shear in the in Vilna's Great Synagogue in attendance was a, was a, was a big Talmud Chacham, Rav Yoshua Heschel, who heard the six-year-old give this adult speech, but he was unimpressed. He said, anybody could memorize. So he, he asked the Gra, he asked little Eliyahu, tell me a chiddish, to which on the spot, without hesitation, little Eliyahu said a and a new idea that he had not said before. Um, and then the rab proceeded to ask him a series of kashes on the shmuz on, on the on the shir that the rab gave, and he answered each one of them well. When he was seven, he already knew all the meseches and shas. Um, when he was nine, he knew all of Tanakh um, and he knew all the major mafarshim on shas. How could
1: he know whole of the he on shas before he knew? Tanakh?
0: No, no. <laughs> uh, no, no <laughs> By ten, he was a master of the Zohar. At 13, he was a master of all Kabbalah and what were called the Seven Secular wind- Wisdoms. Um, at, at, um, he was already widely known from the age of, th- from the age of uh, 13 um, as, and called the Ga'on, which is a general term for genius. Uh, it, no, no relation to the Ga'oning, the period of the Ga'onim, other than the term is, 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 is high praise. Um, when he was 20, he was considered the posecador. I'm sorry, how old are you all? Any 20-year-olds 20, 20 here? So at 20, he was considered the Posick of Dor. I am, but I'll be a postic in about a year. There you go, working on it. Um, when he was 23, interestingly and mysteriously, he went into, for about five years, he disappeared. It's called Provengalis, which the Yiddish expression. Um, the The best explanation that people have is that he went. He he got too much covered because of his stature, and he didn't want the cover. He wanted to work on his midos. So he went in anonymity, wandering like a beggar. Um, he would sleep in base in a base medrash. Of course, he consumed the books in the base medrash, and he clearly remembered everything that he ever learned and um, you know learned the whole time. He returned to Vilna in 1748. The same year. Um, and he's still a, a youngish man he was not yet he, he, was, he was the same year that Rav Rabbi, um, Rabbi Yaakov ended, clumped on the bema and, and printed his infamous um, proofs that Rav and Iveshets was the fa- secret father of Shabtai Tzvi, just to bring put things around that right, same year um, he was a master of gematria I'll give you just one um, illustration, gematria you remember shows the inevitability of every Torah idea you've heard gematrias before right? So your reaction is, wow, great party trick, I'll impress my friends. No, no, don't use it to impress your friends. The idea is if the numerical (coughs) number adds up to something that's parallel and fitting, and sometimes eerily fitting, often eerily fitting, what it shows you is Hashem really did write the Torah. And it really all comes with the Shemaim, and it all circles back on itself. So, for example, you ever heard this one before? It's a fantastic one. Do you know that everything Shabbos is seven? Seven is holiness. Everything significant about Shabbos adds up to seven in the following way. Get this, it's beautiful. Take anything significant you associate with Shabbos. Take for oh. example, Nair. Nair, we have Shabbos candles. Nair is Nun Reish. Nun in Gamatri is fifty. Reish is two hundred. Two hundred and fifty, add the single digits together and you get seven. 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 Hold on. We'll, we'll, we'll go down. Um, yain. Seven. Yain, Yayin yud yud nun. 10 10 50 adds up to 70. 7 plus 0, 7. Dog. Basar. No. Crane. S. Raish Yudnun. Crane horseradish. Well, how about chicken? Then? Hold on. G- I don't know. Gefilte. Uh, marak soup. Kishka. cholent. Um, some modern people today, I don't think the gra I added this last one, but some people um, point out that even the word sushi. Adds up to seven. Um, (laughs) One of the Graz gifts to us, to all of Klal Yisrael, was he was one of the great personalities who reviewed all of the collective library of of the Jewish people, which is a pretty vast library by the 18th century, um, with the goal of correcting its many, many copyist mistakes. uh, And he he does a lot. When he would make uh, any change in the revealed Torah, what's called the Torah Nigle, he would um, check 20 corresponding sources first, just to make sure he could do so with confidence, and he had many sources to check. Uh, Anytime he would check what's called the Torah Nistar, like Kabbalistic sources, he would make sure before he changed anything to check 150 sources. He said that one of the reasons why he did this was that he felt only divine assistance, Siat Deshmaya, would help his enterprise. Um, he has, for example, one significant change in our and Makos coming up in our Segea, Yud, Yud Aleph on the base. Um, he says that um, contrary to the accepted girsan, you could look it up in our, in our Gemara, um, if somebody is not a Goel Hadam, somebody who can, who can kill uh, a murderer, an accidental murderer, um, if you're not part of the family, um, and you kill the rotzeach. Um If you kill the Rotseach b'shogeg, such a person is not chayev. But the previous text had said they would be chayev; they would be guilty of such a thing. That's a big change. <laughs> that is a big change. Um, once the grah was staying in a, in, in somebody in, in a host's home, and in appreciation for the hospitality. He noticed he'd read, of course, when he stayed there, he read all the Sfarim in the host's library. And he noticed that the Rashba, the end of the Rashba, the parish Shas in the host's home, was missing the last 10, 15 pages. So, you know what the Grah did as a going away gift, showing his gratitude. He, from memory, filled in the end of the last 10, 15 pages of the Rashba. That, of course, the Grah knew by heart. You do too, don't you? You know, the end, you know the end of the rash was the shots no nothing to do with the grah you're maybe confusing with the legend <laughs> about the Maharal, gra- which we told a few weeks a couple weeks ago is gra- gaon gra- rabbeinu eliahu yeah. okay. um, the grah with all of his brilliance and his 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 uh, being unparalleled in the world the grah um, favored his style of learning which is absolutely influential till today in most litvish yeshivas he favored simple uh, straightforward clarity in learning no nonsense no shtick he did not like you remember we met the peel Rav Yaakov and the peel pull approach which was fancy elaborate learning but didn't lead him very far it didn't get into practical halacha the Gra was a very strong opponent of that style of learning or anything else um, he often, in his peirush, you could look it up, it's very short, very elegant, he'll often make one reference to a parallel sugya, and in that one little comment, you see a world of meaning. By making a connection, you suddenly, oh wow, the whole thing opens up in front of you. Um, sometimes he'll make a simple textual emendation, uh, he'll often challenge an accepted psaq. Um, ironically today, the old pool. Doesn't exist, and when people talk about peel pool, what they mean is a simple, clear analysis, kind of like the style of the Gras. So the Gras was an opponent of historical peel pool, but he, as it were, is associated with the new peel pool, which is really his, his, his legacy. Um, <clears throat> he wrote lots of books. He wrote a book on what we call trigonometry. He composed music. I mentioned that in the music sheer a few weeks ago. Um, that he he talked about the importance of singing and how that could potentially uh, you could really didn't understand a lot of the classic texts without music. Um, he wrote voluminously on almost every major work of Torah. He was a master in every area of learning. Um, he was, for example, he knew philosophy, but he was a, he was one of the sh- um, harshest critics of what he called the Rambam's philosophia arura, the cursed philosophy of the Rambam. Um, he was also considered the, without parallel, greatest Kabbalist of his time. So even though it's ironic, Hasidim will be learning Kabbalah in a huge way. And when you go into Hasidish, uh, you know, today you go into you know, many, many Hasidic based madrashes, they learn a lot of Kabbalah, Chabad especially, but not just. Um, but really, the unparalleled Kabbalist was the Gra himself. Um, most of his life he sat learning secluded.
1: How did he write the
0: first page or Good question. I don't know the answer to that. He was offered positions, offices, appointments. He, re- he rejected all of them. He, um, he was just not interested in any, in any fanfare. He would not give public lectures. He rarely gave a haskama, an endorsement of a book. He was simple. He sat and he learned. <laughs> and Chal Israel till today, benefited. Yeah. Was he charismatic, like who we tell? Um, well, listen, that, that's what I'm going good. on let me let me let me paint how he was as a a person you should know this is important for history to understand the grounds because his impact his influence would be would be immense he um, slept only two hours a day um, in four half-hour intervals you remember who used to do that David melech okay and during the four you all get that those of you taking naps right now Uh, y'all got that Anyway, during those half-hour intervals, during every twenty-four-hour cycle, when, his, when he would take his nap, um, during the, the, those half-hour intervals, um, his lips would move in silent Chazara on the day's learning and what he had learned. That, you know, what he had been learning. Almost all of his other waking hours, waking hours, he was learning. In the wintertime, he, he would deliberately leave the room unheated with his feet in cold water so he would stay awake. Um, one of his students, Rav Yisrael of Shklov, said he chazered the Bavli, the 36 Masechdas of Talmud Bavli, once every month. Um, another student, Rav Shal of Vilna, said he saw him once as a young, as a young boy, a young, young student, he once saw the, the, the Rav who chazer 142 pages of chulin overnight. Um, and then the next morning he was in awe at how clear and incisive the Graz answers were the next morning when he gave him a fahera, a test. Um, Even as he was dying, when the graa was on his deathbed, his lips moved constantly in learning. So much so that when family members were outside and they approached the doctor they said, they asked the doctor about his deteriorating condition and they asked him, wu halter? Which it translates as, where's he holding? And the doctor misunderstood the question and he answered, er halt in maseches keeling. He's holding a Masechus Kehle. That's great, come on. That's priceless. Okay. Um, However, to address your question, it's incorrect to portray him as a cold, dispassionate figure. He was not. Um, Even though he didn't necessarily, he wasn't known for investing lots of time, personal time with students, but on Simchas Taira, he danced ecstatically, so much so that he's one of the two, together with David Amelech, examples that's cited by the Mishnah Bura and how we're supposed to dance on Simchas Taira. He, he, knew, he knew how to celebrate when the time called for it. Um, he, was, he was, even though he didn't necessarily spend individual time, he was a very devoted teacher. He gave um, <coughs> an upper, upper limit of tzedakah to poor people, 20% which is certainly as you know shows that the great chesed he Can often yeah sure he had sons he often gave up his own meals and clothing to the poor directly off his back people didn't have he gave them to him um, he raised funds personally to redeem captives uh, to help girls get married he was a big advocate of living basimcha. Chassidim did not have a mon- monopoly on the subject he was an, an immensely simchetic personality um, he didn't. He was. He was critical of people who fasted too much, meaning he was not somebody that was um, extreme or into, into flagellation. Um, he didn't think people. People. He, he. Even though he himself had a very simple lifestyle, he said people should, should seek simcha in their lives. Um, he's a role model for the Musr movement, which we're going to see coming around the corner. Um, in fact, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a contemporary of his, saw the irony. Listen. Listen. It's a great insight. Um, the Grah was called. Everybody called, referred to him in his day as the Gra Hachassid. So he said, "What an irony then that the other movement we call the Chassidim, really the Grah's people, should be called the Chassidim, and we, of all people, we were the revolutionaries. We were the reactionaries. We should have been called the Misnagdim. The world got it backwards." That was an insight from Roshner Zalman. Um, <clears throat> Probably one of the most enduring contributions um, of the Gra was restoring the role of the Talmud Chacham to uh, its traditional primacy. His own simple, modest example as a human being resonated far more than any of the miracles that the Hasidic Rebbe's were doing. All you, had to be, all you had to do was cite the Go'on, and you needed no frills and no miracle stories. But I got one story, and it's not a miracle story, but it's a true one. <coughs> it comes from actually. These are the days of the Haskalah, <laughs> of the secular enlightenment, and there was a maskil by the name of Abba Abba of Glusk, who was uh, associated with Moshe Mendelssohn in Berlin, and he came to the Gra, and he was a very smart guy, and he wanted to ask, he wanted to dumbfound the Vilnagon with his heretical questions, so he, he managed to arrange a private audience with the Gra, and he started throwing all these questions at the Vilna and the Grah was blank-faced and appeared not to know the answers to anything. So Abba of Gloss continued to uh, throw his questions at him. <laughs> and the Grah seemed stumped. <laughs> Finally, when Abba had run out of que- ideas, um, the, the Gon, when he saw that Abba was silent, answered as follows. Your questions are, 20, are 73 in number. In reality, though, they only num- they're really only 15 because the first, first and the seventh and the twenty-fifth and the forty-seventh are really one question in the same category. At which point, the Gras proceeded to reshuffle all of the various questions into a neat, more, more uh, logical, fifteen questions, which he proceeded to subdivide and sort into categories. He didn't omit, he didn't add to the list. And then he replied one by one to each of the fifteen questions. <laughs> was now the one who looked dumbfounded, and he said, I think you got two points wrong. He said what the two points were. The Grah then, without changing a beat, um, proceeded to answer the 15 questions verbatim as he had previously answered them. When he would finished, Abed Vlusket, you're right, I was mistaken. You didn't answer anything (coughs) wrong. Um, Rav Chaim of his his great student, said, um, not only did the gra know all the letters and words of the Tanakh of Shas and all the post scheme, the Gra could identify any previous word to any given passage instantly. The, like, I said the words, exactly.
1: So by separation you would be able to say for oh, okay.
0: Yes. Wow. Well not that example is not a wow because most of us could do that, but he could do everything. Now the Gra, the Gra is the figurehead in the fight against hasidus He's not the initiator. He signed the dotted line, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't write up the draft of the paper. Um, in 1781, the Balatanya, of Zalman became a leader of hasidus after the Magi died, and the Gra issued a stronger harem a stronger excommunication. And the Balatanya and Reb Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk another other Hasidic leader tried vehemently, tried very, very hard to meet with the Gra, and famously, the Gra refused. You know the story. Yeah. Okay, the Gra said no, um, and explained for the following reasons. He said, "There's no point in meeting them. They've already made up their minds, so the debate is pointless, and therefore it's vital Torah for all of us." He said, and at second second point, he said that meeting them would have conferred some legitimacy legitimacy, just the very fact of the meeting would have given them some kind of legitimacy. He didn't feel they were legitimate.
1: No. McGraw
0: the right, mastered them, he was not in favor proponent of studying don't think so. Yeah, but he okay. translated this. So give me a few minutes. I'm almost done, and we're almost done with this with this particular unit. So, uh, give me just oh, well, a couple he, he minutes. Um, that, that. Near the end of his life, near the end of his life, the Vilna started making aliya. Started to to um, he left for Eretz Yisrael, and for reasons none of us will ever know, he made it as far as Germany, and then turned back. But pay attention. He was certainly a major, like all good Jews are major advocates of moving to Eretz Israel. His students would follow in his legacy and they succeeded. Um, we're going to talk about that. them. They're, they're called the Prushim, they come in 1808, 1809, 1812. Um, when the Soviets built a stadium over his grave site in 1946, um, the secular Soviets, the non-Jewish Soviets said they found his body was intact.
1: What did they do?
0: Um, I don't know, good question. I think they re-buried him. Now, um, with all the violence and all the struggles from both sides, as we were starting to talk about, when Pitam and I were talking about this, there would be um, long-term positive effects. Both sides and the criticism would have a moderating effect on, on one another. Um, sometimes you need to shine a light on the flaws in each camp for, um, for the good stuff to come out. So that if the early Hasidim were guilty of sometimes neglecting learning Torah, we're going to find in the next couple generations of Hasidim there's going to be a renaissance of Torah learning. Um, The Hasidim themselves were critical of one another. Um, They were critical of the excesses of some of the Rebis and their neglect of certain halachic practices. Some of these things are going to be fixed. Um, if If the Hasidim... Um, were critical of the Torah establishment and if they were right that they were let's say elitist and the Jewish masses felt alienated from, from them so later generations would be more outwardly directed and there would be what would be called a Kiruv movement that would emerge and arguably if we're not for Hasidists there might never have been a Kiruv movement um, education would be accessible for men but you know Another possible statement you could make is maybe there'd be no base Yaakov movement. Education for women wouldn't have been made possible without the spirit of Chassidus. Um, one direct result of the criticism of the um, lack of morality among the, you know, the academic circles of, of, uh, of, of Torah learning was a new movement that would be founded um, called the Musr movement, which we'll hear more about, which puts an emphasis on Midos. Um, Especially as a new common enemy emerged, namely the secularism, Haskalah will emerge. The two sides made peace, um, and eventually, you know, to, in order, in order, and that's that's the state of affairs till today. Um, most minimize the controversial elements today, um, with, with the exception of Chabad and Breslav both of whom retain the original firebrand radicalism of the first generation. Most of the other Hasidim um, and, and, and the Litvish world are, are very much in harmony. Um, and that's, that's, that's the way we should really emerge from this. Um, I, I once gave this year and I made the mistake, I, I, you know, I have a kind of dry, dry sense of humor sometimes, so I, I, I got up at the beginning and I said, you know, anybody who thinks that there's still a conflict between Hasidim and Misnagdim is living in the past, I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to learn very much about the Hasidic movement to recognize that it has a tremendous amount in common with Judaism. <laughs> oh, All right, I said that with a straight face, and some people in the audience whispered, did, did he say what you think he said? What I think he said? Right, right. The truth is it's a, it's a variation on, on, a, on, a, on a line that's attributed to Shachtu about Chabad. Um, and the whole thing is, 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 is it's a, it's probably a poorly chosen joke here, especially since really our emphasis should be on common, you know, commonalities and not not, not divisiveness. Yeah. Do
1: you know Rav Shach wanted to come with one night, part of the village? That's what someone's told about. Rav Shach? Rav Shach. And then he, and then they did, like, they did, he wanted to be one of the ladites in the baggage, and the village did not let him in, and that's why he was such a... Well, that would sound As like a, a kind baggage. of a,
0: that would sound like a kind of a calumny, a lie that would be told maybe by um, somebody who's a staunch supporter of Chabad. <laughs> and, and, no, no. No, it? I, it, 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 it couldn't be less true. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to be tentative. I, I don't know everything. I don't, I'm not a master of the life of Rav Shach, but it, nothing about Rav Shakh indicates that that story could be true. Um, tomorrow we'll pick up from this period, and we're going to talk about the secular enlightenment.